Hello, everyone. Welcome to Equals. This is Max. Welcome, everyone, to Equals. This is Nabil. We've got a wonderful interview today with Anne Pettifer on really the untalked about and hidden side of the global financial system and the havoc that's wrecking to economies right across the globe. We're going to be hearing about the City of London to Wall Street over here. Over here, yeah, Nabil. That's the other big news uh, for those Equals listeners who haven't picked up on it. Our co-host, Nabil, has relocated with his whole family from Nairobi, Kenya, to Washington in the USA. I wouldn't quite call it big news, Max, but, but you know. It is. Well, I think it's big news, yeah. So what's it like? I mean, how are you getting on? So it's wonderful to have this chance. I've relocated to the US. I've taken on a new job here at Oxfam America. I had a remarkable few years welcomed in Kenya, and I and I miss my Kenyan family dearly. But yeah, it's a privilege to be here. You know, we know how important the fight against inequality is here in the US. And we also know how important what happens here is to the rest of the world. And can I say, Max, I couldn't quite go to the UK. It looks It looks quite unstable right now. I mean, it is. I mean, it's like a failed state. I mean, since we did our last podcast, I think we've had two monarchs, three prime ministers, and that doesn't include the lettuce. I don't know. But yes, yeah, so it's pretty chaotic here in, in, in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, the, the lettuce. And, um, and just to bring it back to equals for a moment, I remember when we had Gary Young on the podcast many episodes ago. He spent a lot of time here in the US and he spoke about America's ability to recreate itself. And I honestly think that had something to do with my decision to get over here. I think that's right. It's an incredible place. It has the best of things and the worst of things. And look forward to hearing all about it from you. So uh, that'd be brilliant. So let's 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 talk about today's episode. This is really going to go into some depth about the role of financial markets and some of the perhaps more hidden aspects of behind inflation, the inflation crisis that's hurting everybody around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we're trying to do on this season of Equals is cover the stuff that's not making the news or making the opinion pages of the newspapers. So it really is an honour to have Anne Pettifer on the podcast. She's someone who's been really at the radical end of economic thinking for some time. She's also famously someone who saw the economic crash of 2008 coming when nobody else was. And Max, I also know she's someone that you and many others worked with when she led this incredible effort to get the debts of the poorest countries cancelled. That was huge. Yeah, I mean, probably the most successful big campaign on a development issue ever, I think. I mean, it was it was just amazing, the Jubilee 2000 campaign, which many people were involved in and Anne played a leading role in that saw the cancellation of debts for many, many developing countries and hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars liberated in debt payments that should have been made that were then cancelled and spent on schools and hospitals. So for me, one of the high points of of my life has been working on that that issue. Yeah, and we'll be talking about debt and the hidden side of the global financial system and also why, you know, simplistic explanations about supply and demand don't always cut it. Shall we get to the interview? Let's do it. really like to welcome you to Equals. It's fantastic that we're going to talk to you today. You've always been one of my heroes and this is going to be a great conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. So welcome to Equals. Thank you so much. I'm honoured to be here. Thank you so much. And let me ask about yourself just to start with, because I know you grew up in apartheid South Africa. You witnessed 
racism there and the impacts of that, the brutal inequality firsthand. How's that personally shaped you and, and your life as a, as a thinker and a campaigner? I think it's sort of made me neurotically obsessive about social justice. I mean, here I am. <clears throat> I'm not young anymore. I hate to disclose how old I am. I'm very, very old. <clears throat> and I simply cannot stop getting very agitated and very angry about the injustice of both you know, our international financial system and economic system. Here we are, 2022, uh, talking about a life of, of fighting crises and and, and we really are, I think, what people are calling facing a, po- a polycrisis, which is a new one on me. I remember omnicrisis, but now we have a polycrisis. So we've got COVID-19, we've got a cost of living crisis. And there are some causes, at least, you know, the, the front page causes the pandemic and the war. But could you help us understand the role of the financial sector in all of this? And so what behind all of these immediate causes, what's going on with big money? So we live within an architecture. If you think of the international financial system as a big building, you know, it's a building in which the 1% at the top of the building run the whole show. And it's a building that's quite rickety, actually. It isn't built on sound foundations. And, you know, it's scrappily built. And yet we all live within it. And periodically it crumbles. Periodically uh, the building you know, wobbles and you feel it's going to fall down. So we've had, you know, very interestingly, the first of the big tremors, I think, that affected the architecture, the global financial architecture, were the debt crises of emerge, of poor and low-income countries. I don't, I hate the word developing and undeveloping. The low-income countries, if you like, that were at the margin of this building, of the structure of the global economy. So they began to default on their debts uh, and crises therefore occurred first in Latin America, then in Africa and then in parts of Asia. And then gradually those crises moved towards the core of the global economy. You know, we got the crisis of the 19, the 1989 crisis when Japan went belly up, if you like. And Japan to this day has not fully recovered from the crisis of 89 and then we had the dot-com crisis and so on until we hit the 2007-9 crisis which was at the core of the global economy that's when the United States Europe and Britain were most directly impacted by the fragility of the international system it's really important for us to understand all that we work that we do on the ground all of our concerns about what's going on here at home the domestic economy Really, very little can be done until we fix the building, until we fix the architecture of the international financial system. And that's, you know, I came to that conclusion during the Jubilee 2000 campaign. I wanted to see the NGOs campaign for an alteration in the relationship between international creditors, both private private and public, and sovereign debtors. I wanted us to change the architecture of those arrangements because at the moment it's all heavily weighted in favour of the creditors. They make all the gains and all the losses, the burden of all the losses is imposed on poor countries. And that's the structure that, that structure is still in place. I'm so encouraged actually by all the work that's being done in Africa now on the international financial system by AfroDad and other organisations, women's organisations and so on. But that's the structure that we have to change in order to 
ensure that there is some justice in the system. Bringing it closer to this cost of living crisis that's playing out around the world, I'd love to dive deeper into some, to some of the things that you've been talking about in the public, on your newsletter and on your Substack and so forth. You know, we've seen these rising, highly sustained prices of food. But you've also spoken about how this isn't actually being determined by simply by the laws of supply and demand, but by the role of speculation. Could you walk us through what's going on here, you know, in this kind of hidden arena and to a to, to a non-expert audience? Yeah, sure. I just, first of all, I want to say to the audience, don't for a moment be in awe of economists and in particular of orthodox economists. If you think this is too complicated for you, you are wrong. They're invariably wrong. Now, they take... That's very reassuring, Anne, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Traditional economists, and in fact, most of them, take the, the sort of simplistic view that prices are determined by supply and demand. So if I'm selling soybeans or if I'm selling oil or gas or if I'm selling wheat, then the price of that wheat is determined entirely by any traders who may wish to buy that wheat. And that has not been the case since we deregulated the international financial system and we deregulated the business of uh, markets in these commodities. And what has happened instead is that a new market has evolved. Oil is the most obvious example of that. Let's bring it down to earth and and just recall that in the week that President Putin shut down Nord Stream 1, which is a pipe that piped gas into Germany from Russia, he closed that down. He closed down the supply of gas. Now, what happens if you close down the supply? Price should go up. But in that week, the price of gas halved. Right now, why is that? That's because the price of gas is doesn't depend on the traders buying and selling supply and demand. It depends on what is happening in what is called the paper market in gas or the paper mar- in in oil. There are two markets. There's the wet market where there are traders like Shell, for example, that is actually buying and selling and trading oil, and then there's the paper market in oil which is the speculative market. And that's a piece of paper saying, I bet the price is going to rise. I bet the price is going to fall. And you swap those pieces of paper and they have a value of their own. And that is with the way in which the price is fixed. It's like a, a, a gambling saloon. And what happened in the case of the oil and gas sectors is that from before the new year this year, Investors started piling into the paper market for these commodities. And that, by the way, is managed in Chicago by the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And they began to gamble on and speculate on what, that, what was going to happen to the price. And, and that's what pushed because then more and more and more piled into that market to gamble. And as a result, there's more and more money in the market and the price was just rising. And people, oh, I must get in there and win, you know, make some gains from that price rise quickly. And then in the week that uh, Putin closed down Nord Stream 1, the market began to think, ooh, we've gone too far. Prices are too high. This could lead to recession. Let's lower the price. 
and so the price then started to go down. We mustn't think that the price in grain, for example, in food, is something in, determined by traders. It's determined by these speculative markets, and, and those markets are not regulated, and they're not answerable to any government. Right? There are plenty of people who think you shouldn't manage it. I happen to think you should, because the market in food, in grain, is a question of human survival. And if you don't manage that market and you leave it to something abstract called the invisible hand, you, you're actually responsible. You're responsible for the deaths of thousands, perhaps millions of people dying from starvation. I, I just wanted to ask you there because you say they're not managed. You know, who's setting the rules at the casino? The casino, the, the gamblers, they set the rules. You know, big companies like BlackRock. Um, no, no, I, to be fair to uh, the regulators, there is some regulation. I exaggerate when I say there's no regulation. But very famously, the Clinton administration, against the advice of its own institutions, financial institutions, decided to liberalise commodity markets on the advice of Larry Summers and others. And so the big liberalisation happened under Clinton. I mean, the idea is one that, for example, most governments adhere to, which is that actually, no, you can trust the market. The market will do the right thing. The market will discipline those who, who behave badly or wrongly, and it will reward those who behave well. Well, it doesn't work like that at all. It's, you know, it's very unfair. And it's something, if you think about it, this question um, applies across the board, because there's another element to this, which is that after the 2007-9 financial crisis, the central banks acted to bail out the financial system, and they did it with something called quantitative easing. In other words, they injected liquidity into the system in exchange for assets, in exchange for collateral. Now, the problem with that is that, that central banks can't put money into my bank account or your bank account. It can only put money into the bank account's of its own clients. And the only clients of the central bank are other banks, financial institutions like pension funds, hedge funds, and so on, private equity. Central banks did this on the premise that the, those institutions would use all that liquidity and spread it around. <laughs> well, of course, they didn't. They didn't do what they were supposedly asked to do. And silly old central banks never, ever set terms and conditions for all that liquidity. Uh, when you have a wall of money aimed at a finite resource like, like property, there's only, you can't have more land than we have in Britain today, right? It's a, a finite amount of land. It's bordered by the sea. It's fixed. If you aim a wall of money at that, the inevitable consequence is the prices rise. So what we've seen is that since 2007-9, money has flooded into assets. And who owns assets? The rich own assets, you know. And secondly, there's been massive asset price inflation. Have you heard of asset price inflation? My next question was about exactly this. This is perfect. Yeah, because we have actually had a period of very high inflation of assets for some time, haven't we? I mean, that's, that's the big thing that people don't realise. Central banks have never once complained about that, not in my, to my knowledge. The minute we get consumer price inflation, there's panic. But the really important thing is this, that if a central bank allows consumer price inflation to rise, 
it makes a hell of a lot of people really angry, people like me and you, because this means, you know, we lose a lot of value when we go shopping and so on. But if they were to do the same thing they're doing to us on inflation, if they had to do that to asset price inflation, they would upset the 1%. They would upset the owners, the rich, the owners of assets. And they daren't do that. Sorry, I can feel I'm ranting away at you here. No, no, no. I think it was just because I'm really thinking, because obviously as Oxfam, we've done a lot of work on the fortunes of billionaires and of the super rich. And and there's a massive link between this and the, the, what you wonderfully describe as this wall of money. And, and, you know, you can see that over the last 10 years, the big winners have been those at the very top uh, and the owners of assets. My question is, what happens now? Because I'm just assuming they're going to win in a new high interest rate environment, high inflation. Is that going to reduce the number of billionaires or are they going to find another way of so thing, staying on top? So the thing is this, Max, and I really want to get this across. All the financial crises we've faced in the last 20 years or so have been, well, since back to 1989, have been caused by falling asset prices. So inflation doesn't cause global financial crises. Asset price deflation, when asset prices begin to deflate, is the cause of financial crisis, has been the cause of financial crises. In 1989, uh, Japan had a massive asset bubble. They had printed money like there's no tomorrow. All their property prices had gone through the roof. And then suddenly one day, and, and the key thing is this, I own a piece of land in the middle of New York. I'm Japanese. I've owned, I own this massive fallacy building in, I don't know, on Fifth Avenue in New York. And because I own that collateral, I can go to the bank and say, look, I've got this fancy building. It's worth $30 million or whatever. Can you please lend me $150 million or maybe even just $100 million? And the bank says, yeah, of course I can, because we know you're a good client. And B, you've got this collateral. Maybe not $100 million, but I could give you $40 million, say, against your $30 million collateral. That's fine. Then suddenly the value of that collateral begins to flaw. Why? For lots of different reasons. Suddenly your building is only worth $10 million, but you've built, you've borrowed $40, $50 million on the back of it. Now you have to repay that. Panic-stricken. This is what happened to the pension funds here last week, right? It is what happens every time we have a global financial crisis. It is triggered by asset price deflation. So asset price inflation, unlike CPI, is a cause of financial, global financial crises. And now, as I speak to you, asset prices are collapsing. Bond market prices, stocks and shares are prices. Crypto has collapsed. Crypto is an asset. The price of Rolex watches are falling as well. <laughs> and that's, so that's a sure sign. Can I just ask, just on this issue of super rich people, though, okay, asset prices are falling, and obviously, you know, as we watch very carefully, billionaire wealth is taking a pummeling, we've got less billionaires, lower lower numbers, but they also had this absolutely meteoric increase during the last three years, so they'll have to come down a long way to to get back pre-pandemic, but... What the thing I don't, and we saw it after the financial crisis, that those with very deep pockets 
come back very quickly because they can also buy assets at kind of low prices. And what I don't understand uh, and love to hear explained is if we move into a more kind of high interest rate, high inflation environment, how do very rich people make sure they make money then? Because I understand how with a low interest, low inflation, you can leverage enormous and, and then you've got the QE impact. I mean, that's been most of my knowledge of this and this is such a new world but i just assume that billionaires are going to find a way to stay on top anyway they will always find a way on to stay on top so long as governments let them so long as we have capital mobility and so as long as we refuse to regulate their activities but number one you you really mustn't underestimate the destruction that is about to happen and dear old imf and i have you know, been more critical of the IMF than most people. Nevertheless, they have been screaming about the level of debt being higher as per share of global GDP than it was before 2007-9, and nobody's taken much notice. So you, you mustn't underestimate the level of destruction of wealth that's going to take place now. But, you know, the thing, the thing I want to stress is this. When it happened, People on the left, and I'm thinking about all those good people that support Oxfam, progressive people, we all stood there, if you like, with our mouths open. We said, and lots of people said, we didn't know this could happen. How, how come this has happened? We thought it couldn't happen. And you weren't alone. The governor of the Bank of England thought that. Alan Greenspan, the governor of the Federal Reserve, was stunned. He didn't think it could happen, right? And as a result, nothing changed because we were all stunned and nobody said anything. And I'm saying this because I think we too are responsible. We too haven't really understood what's going on. That gives them permission to do as they please, to consolidate and to become more powerful. That's why understanding and educating ourselves and understanding this stuff and then campaigning on it is so important so that we can develop an alternative. And for me, the... The key solution is capital mobility, frictions on the mobility of capital. I think capital controls are the mechanism above all else for the management of the international financial system by governments, and in particular by democratic governments. If we don't manage capital mobility, you know, they can go on getting richer and richer, and they will. This is such a fascinating conversation. And the thing with you is I, I feel we could go into like so many different issues. It's almost hard to pick. But one thing I'd love to do, Anne, if I may, is just to just to pivot here, because I'm really getting an understanding of what this moment, this real turmoil means for, for you know, rich and poor people. I'd love to get a sense for you what this economic turmoil means for poorer nations. What do you foresee happening right now as we get through this crisis for poorer countries across the world? Well, you know, we haven't started to talk about the dominance of the US dollar and the recklessness of the Federal Reserve in ratcheting up interest rates and strengthening the dollar and encouraging, I'm back on capital mobility here, money is flooding out of low-income countries into the United States because the dollar is strong. And the, and the American economy is strong as well. And that's causing massive instability and, and poverty. And it's worth, going to worsen poverty. It's going to make, you know, if, if global commodities are setting food prices and you pay for food prices in dollars 
or you, you've got, I, I'm a South African born, right? Um, South Africa, the currency is falling. The dollar is strengthening. I have to buy oil. Oil is only sold in dollars. I desperately need pharmaceuticals because HIV and COVID is still with us in South Africa. I can only buy those pharmaceuticals. Nobody wants a South African rand. Nobody wants a Nigerian naira. I have to find dollars. So export orientation, dig up my forests, dig up my uh, minerals, dig up my fish, my seas, chuck them into the global market and earn a few dollars so that I can buy oil and pharmaceuticals. If we don't change that system and we don't end the dominance of the dollar, the situation for low-income countries is just going to steadily get painfully worse. How does this moment of debt for poorer countries across the world compare to you know, what you were taking on in, in the 2000s, for example, with, with the debt crisis then? You know, unless we alter the international financial system so that there is greater balance between creditor countries and debtor countries. I mean, in the, in the private sector, in, in the domestic economy, back in the 19th, 18th and 19th centuries, economists had the wisdom to realise that when a, a company's warehouse burnt down and they went bust, you could put them in jail, of course, for not paying their debts, for defaulting on their debts. And you'll remember that Charles Dickens's father was sent to Marshalsea Prison because he couldn't pay his debts. And then quickly the economists realised if you put the man in prison, he's not active. He's not uh, economically active. He's not going to be able to raise new money. He's not going to be able to borrow new money. So better to get him back on the street working and being economically active than to keep him stuck in jail. Now, that was foresight and wisdom. And so it, bankruptcy laws were introduced. We have still not got that foresight or wisdom in the international financial system. We're putting poor countries in jail for defaulting on debts when it's not their fault. You know, It's not their fault that, this, that the, the dollar is very strong and their debts are rising inexorably without any reference to them and their activities, but just simply because their debt is denominated in dollars. So it's about changing that structure but then we have, to, and I want what I'd like to see is what Keynes advocated, which is an independent central bank issuing something called the Bancor, a currency that isn't tied to any imperial power, but is is managed in a bit in the way in which the central bank manages the commercial banks here at home. We would have a central bank managing the the international flows of finance at an international level. You know, in a sense, not not the IMF because the IMF. <laughs> is beyond the pale. But the the Bank for International Settlements was intended very long ago to, to be a sort of clearing bank for all the central banks in the world. And I think we should be thinking along those lines if we really want to address the debt issue and forcing creditors to take losses as well as debtors in the same way as, as happens in the domestic system. So you'd have a kind of bankruptcy mechanism you know because I mean right now we've got a massive problem I think when we were campaigning on debt back in the 2000s it was very much debt owed to countries and to the IMF and the World Bank wasn't it whereas now it feels kind of different it feels like a lot of it is owed to private creditors which seems to be particularly problematic could you tell us a bit about that? Well the point is this that what has happened is that rich countries 
have cut their aid budgets and have cut back on lending and so on. And they've said, look, let's leave the private sector to do that. But we, the government, will de-risk that activity for private players. So we have increasingly the, 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 the rich country taxpayer guaranteeing private lending against losses. We have the financial crash. Um, we've had this extreme rise in inequality. Obviously, now COVID, this cost of living crisis. Just as a final closing question is, um, do you have hope in this moment for a different kind of alternative to, 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 to be manifested in the wake of all we're facing right now? So right now, compared to 2007, we have far greater awareness, not just in our country, but also in the South. And that's hugely encouraging. What we lack is political power. And that's because many of us on the progressive end of the spectrum regard politi- political power as something dirty that we don't really want to get involved with. We want to be kind to the poor, but we want to get involved, get our hands dirty by becoming politically active. So we're far, far away from political power. The rich, the 1%, you know, the right, they know the importance of political power and clinging on to it and grabbing it and holding it and standing united against all odds in order to gain political power. The left is reckless about uniting. The left is careless about uniting. Many on the left prefer sectarianism. I am more left-wing than you are. I am purer than you are. I've got the right answer. You don't have it. And unfortunately, you can't join my club because I'm right and you're blah. Oh, it's so painful to watch. And it's about time that we got serious about political power. And, and because we're so far away from it, I am a little despairing, I have to say. But in terms of understanding, I think we've come a long way. That's step one, at least. And you've certainly helped us understand a hell of a lot more today, Anne. So we really appreciate you taking the time. And I'm sure listeners will, too. Thank you very much for doing this interview. Well, thank you. I was pleased to be here. Very much so. And thank you for all the work that you all do. It's really appreciated. Max, that was a wonderful interview. I feel I've just got out of a lecture that I didn't want to come to an end. Yeah, amazing ideas and such amazing voice. It's like so soothing and yet so radical all at the same time. I, I couldn't listen forever. <laughs> Max, I found what um, Anne said about orthodox economists very compelling. You know, this idea, don't ever be too intimidated by them. Don't ever think that they're too clever. I'm sure, maybe as I did, you know, listeners will find that somewhat empowering. Yes, and it's absolutely true. They get it wrong all the time and they're so short-sighted in their view of the world that we should never be intimidated by them. And what what stuck out for you from the interview? Well, for me, I think it was this phrase, the wall of money. You know, we've heard a lot in previous episodes about the enormous creation of money by central banks and how that's ended up at driving up asset prices and driving up billionaire fortunes to these incredible record highs. But Anne took that kind of a step further and explained how that money doesn't just sit in bank accounts. It's used to then gamble on other stocks, on other prices, and uh, to gamble on things like food and energy. So you've got you know, enormous casino driving up the prices of vital things like food and, and keeping the lights on. I mean, it really is appalling. Yeah, this whole idea of, you know, gamblers being in charge of the casino and also appreciated how Anne connected that 
with a very real cost of living crisis that's been felt right across the world. And just a word on debt, you know, um, we, we, we spoke about that in the interview, about the cost of the dollar rising, about how that's impacting poorer countries, how they're being left to really this extraction of the international financial system. And spoke about having a way for countries to go bankrupt. That struck me as something that needs highlighting a lot more. No, absolutely. I mean, countries worldwide are facing their own cost of living crisis at the national level. You know, impossible debt repayments through no fault of their own because of rising interest rates and the cost of the dollar, as she explained so well. And countries just do not have the option to declare themselves bankrupt, to kind of force their creditors to take a hit. Instead, they have to pay back every single penny and at huge cost, cutting health services, cutting education services. So, I mean, something has to be done to enable the system to allow countries to have a more rational exit from a debt crisis like this. And if you're listening, thanks so very much, folks, everyone out there. Thank you for joining us again on Equals. Um, Next on the podcast, we're going to be getting to grips with an issue that a number of former colonies are taking on, the issue of reparations. We'll be speaking to the groundbreaking Caribbean scholar, Professor Vereen Shepherd, about that. There's actually so much to unpack there that it will be a double episode. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. As ever, please do leave us a review. Do share with friends and family and do join us next time. Yeah, see you next time. Thank you, everyone.